Genesis chapter 2 this evening, and the first three verses. If you're visiting tonight, we've been uh, working our way through some of the major themes in the uh, opening three chapters of the Bible. And so uh, we spent the last few weeks considering uh, man, man made in God's image, man made for uh, communion with God, man made as male and female. Uh, We considered last week the family, now we come to... Uh, That was all in the sixth day. Now we're coming to the seventh day. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In 2013, a Japanese news reporter Her name was Miwa Sado, died suddenly, 2013. She was only 31, uh, but she had just come off a busy stint at work. Again, she's a reporter, and she'd been covering two um, uh, intense elections back-to-back in Tokyo. Sado had clocked 159 hours and 37 minutes of official overtime in the month preceding her death. Uh, however, that's what, that was what was officially recorded. Her family, looking through her cell phone records, um, found out that the number was closer to 210 hours of overtime, which is roughly, in a month's time, seven hours of overtime a day. When her body was found, she was still clutching her smartphone. An investigation by government officials classified this tragic death of this 31-year-old reporter as a case of karoshi. Karoshi, which means literally death by overwork. Karoshi, death by overwork. That's actually an official classification in Japan. And I believe that year there was some 150 people whose deaths were classified as cases of karoshi death by overwork. A reporter, um, Cal Newport, for The New Yorker, said this, the story of Sado and the phenomenon of Karoshi spotlight the dangers of a post-industrial economy in which both the work available, two things, both the work available and our ambitions have become effectively infinite. The work and the ambition. Have you ever felt the seemingly infinite demand of, of work? There's always one, one more email to check, one more phone call to make, one more task to accomplish, one more chore to get done. Uh, the endless push notifications that we have on our smartphones uh, want us to know there's always something more to be done. But more dangerous than the infinite demand of work is the delusion that we think we do have the ability to accomplish it. As Newport writes, our ambitions have become effectively infinite, our ambitions. Um, But if the work seems to be infinite, and even if our ambitions seem to be infinite, there is one thing that is not infinite. You, me, we are not infinite. We're limited creatures. And what Genesis 2 makes very clear is that our issues 
around work and rest are actually, believe it or not, theological issues. These are theological issues. And so to that end, tonight we're going to look at these three verses, and I would like us to draw out four theological lessons regarding rest, um, Sabbath rest in particular, lessons that we need to think carefully about for our own health, our own well-being, um, both physical well-being, but also spiritual well-being. So four lessons for us tonight that we learned from Genesis chapter 2 and um, God's institution of a Sabbath. First, Sabbath rest teaches us about the power of God. That's a beautiful, inspiring thing once you unpack uh, just that first statement there in, in verse 1, that the heavens and the earth were finished, and then verse 2, that God, when he finished it, rested. This is telling us something really incredible about the nature of God, in particular, the attribute of God's power, his potency. We talk about his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And because he's all-powerful, we have a Sabbath. How so? Well, Notice that this rest comes in wake of the accomplishment. It's only after the work is finished. Chapter 1 concludes, if you look at verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That, that term, very good, is so important. The very good of days 1 and 6 um, are important for understanding the rest of day 7, the, the rest that's found there. There's nothing left to do. Everything is good. And that term, very good, means it's complete. It's, it's totally done. It's, there's a perfection to it. It's whole. So, because of that, God can rest. Because he is all-powerful and created the whole world and didn't leave anything left to be done, there's rest now on day seven. Now, we should not think of God resting as God taking a breather, it's not the same kind of rest that I often need to take when I go on jogs with Carrie Ann. You know, it's been so great to run with her ever since she's pregnant because now I can go further. Uh, but normally when we're running together after a mile or sometimes I get to a, two miles, it's, okay, can we, just, can we just stop for a minute? Can we, can we walk for, you know, a tenth of a mile? Can we just get, get, get our breath as I'm holding my side and I'm wheezing and uh, bent over? That's not God here. That's not why he's resting, because he'd just been work- he's been on this, you know, uh, sprint in these last six days, just working, 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 working. And now, okay, I need a breather. That's not what's happening. Matthew Henry says, he did not rest as one weary, but as one well pleased with the instances of his own goodness and the manifestations of his own glory. He's resting because there's no more work to do, and there's no more work to do because he's so powerful. And his power is total. It's perfect. It's complete. Now, it is important, though, to clarify that God, he's ceasing to rest. That's literally what Sabbath means. Shabbat in in Hebrew means to cease. It means a a cessation. While he's ceasing from work, it's particularly, it's the work of creation. That comes out in verse 3, right? God blessed the seventh day made holy. Why? Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's not God rested from all his work Period. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He is still working even right now. He works now through what we call providence. Um, It is, though, what we find here in chapter 2. It is the rest of achievement 
not the rest of inactivity. That's what one theologian says. Achievement, not inactivity, because he still nurtures what he has created. So then, the picture is not of a a hard worker or a laborer who comes home from work, collapses on the the couch, and falls fast asleep. The picture is more like this. It's, It's a king, having conquered, now sits on his throne and surveys the land that belongs to him, the land that is his. This type of rest is now enjoyed also by our mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, we went through that for our Advent series. It begins by saying that, that now, because Christ has uh, made purification for sins, now it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That, that act, sitting down, he sat down. Why? Because the work of redemption is complete. There's nothing left to be done. He said, it is finished, so now he can take his seat. That's the rest that God enters into, and it's a rest that comes because he is so powerful. We're learning of the might. We're learning of the magnitude of God's ability. Only he who can do all could ever arrive to a point where he doesn't need to do anything. Only he who can do all can arrive at a point where he cannot do So Sabbath rest teaches us about God's power. Then, secondly, it teaches us uh, not just about the power of God, but about the need of man. The Sabbath rest teaches us about our need, the necessity of mankind. Sabbath rest is something that God does not just hoard to himself, but he invites us into as his uh, creatures, mankind into. In verse 3, the first half, God blessed the seventh day, and it says he made it. Holy. He consecrates it. To be holy means to set something apart or distinct from everything else. So day seven is distinct from days one through six. He is consecrating the day or he's setting apart the day, not for himself, but for humanity. Uh, Jesus says in Mark chapter two, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is something that he's giving to us. He sets it apart for our benefit. And he's showing uh, Adam and Eve, he's showing mankind in general, that rest is something for them as well. And so, something that we need. And we can highlight two ways in which we need it. First, we need it physically. There's a physical rest that humanity needs. But more importantly, secondly, we need spiritual rest. Let's look first at the physical rest that we need. Uh, As created beings, we need physical rest. We need the daily rest of sleep. We need the weekly rest of Sabbath, even yearly rest were incorporated into Israel's calendar. You know, if you think about the feast days and the, the convocations, and then less frequently, but still built into their, uh, the warp and woof of Israel life, uh, Israel life was um, uh, things like the year of Jubilee, right? So things that would come along every few decades, but there were these, these um, longer periods of rest that were also part of their life. So instructive for us about other rests that we need besides sleep besides a weekly rest. Um, the point, though, is that as limited, as finite, as, as bounded creatures, we get tired. God is the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's not true for us. And yet, studies show that um, we are sleeping less and less than we ever have before in the history of humanity. Uh, in an interview with BBC, there's a professor of Oxford, Russell Foster, He said that people now are getting between uh, one to two hours um, less sleep a night than 
just a generation ago. And he said in response to the lack of sleep that he's seeing that we, meaning humanity, that we are supremely arrogant species. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he tells us. He says, we're supremely arrogant species because we feel we can abandon four billion years of evolution and ignore the fact that we've evolved under a light-dark cycle. You know, if you don't think that you still need that light-dark cycle, you're arrogant. Well, I think arrogance is absolutely right. Um, But I don't think we're arrogant because we're fighting against evolutionary science, but because we're fighting against the creator who made us to need rest. Genesis 2 teaches us that God, who does not need rest, yet himself enjoys it. So how pathetic is it that we who need rest so rarely use it and so often refuse it? And yet this need of ours to rest is met by God's Gracious gift. There's something we need more than sleep, though, and that's for our hearts to rest in the knowledge that we belong to God and that he is in control and that he is good. This need is famously captured by St. Augustine. You, many of you have heard the quote. We used to have it on our mugs here. Right? Our hearts are restless. Well, I guess it starts earlier than that. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's because we are image bearers of God, because we're made by God, that we can only find ultimate rest, ultimate satisfaction, when we come to God as our maker and as our Lord. So that means to rest in God, to have that spiritual rest, is a distinct call upon humanity. Animals need sleep, of course they do, and yet they're not called to observe the Sabbath. Why not? Because they're not made in the image of God. Sabbath keeping is more than just taking a day off of work. Genesis 2 is letting us know this has, God set it apart as holy so that his people would recognize that he is the holy God, that he is their God, that he's their maker. Observing the Sabbath is one of the ways we can uniquely live out our identity, not just as, God, as God's creatures, but as God's image bearers, that we are made especially for him. We mimic the pattern that he established in the very first week. You know Exodus 20. Uh, verses 8 through 11, that's what we find in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Because this is God's pattern, work, then rest, We mimic him when we do that same. That work-rest pattern is God's pattern. When we conform our lives to it, it's one of the ways, one of the ways we show we belong to him. It's one of the ways we embody and we even express our faith that he is in control. God built into the very calendar an opportunity for Adam and Eve to honor him as their maker and Lord, made in his image for his glory. And that's why it's so important, not just that we rest, not just that we rest one day of the week, but in particular that we rest on the Sabbath, that we partake of Sabbath rest. And uh, this morning we discussed that in God's providence. We had a sermon that was also about Christians meeting on the new Sabbath, the, uh, the Lord's Day. And so I'm not going to spend time uh, now talking about why um, uh, we observe the Sabbath not on the, the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week. So if you're interested in learning more, 
tune in online uh, this week and listen to the sermon from this morning. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that, that the rest that God calls us to is not simply a day off of work. It's a day with him. It's a day to commune with him. It's a day of worship, to worship him in the splendor of holiness. A, uh, a pastor was speaking to a, a gathering of ministry leaders, and he was giving, um, detailing his, his average week, and then explaining in more detail uh, his Sunday, what his Sundays look like. And uh, he, he explained how he taught Sunday school first, and that for um, the adults, and then preached the morning sermon, and then they, his family would have people over, they would host a family every week, and then go back before the evening service to do a, a youth group, and then preach the evening sermon. And in that gathering, another pastor asked him, well, when do you, since you're doing all that, when do you Sabbath? That was the way he phrased it. When do you Sabbath? And the answer was immediate. He said, on Sundays. That, that's my Sabbath. Uh, the minister explained that Sabbath has everything to do with meeting with God and worshiping with him. And that's what he's doing in all of those events. And now he did distinguish that from a day off of work. But when we think that God's call to Sabbath is just about taking a break from our jobs or from our regular callings, then it doesn't really matter what we do during that break, does it? It doesn't matter what we do on that day as long as we're not working. But that's not the ultimate call of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just a cessation from work. It's to enter into God's presence and to worship him, to be refreshed by him and so if that's true, if that's really what it's all about, then we must do it on the day that he appointed, in the place that he's appointed, in the way that he has appointed. But think about it with me. If, if we're learning that, that Sabbath rest is, is teaching us this theological lesson about the need of man, what are we implicitly saying when we abandon rest, when we overwork, uh, when we abandon rest in general, but when we abandon Sabbath rest in particular, what are we stating? What theological stance have we taken? Well, maybe we're implying that God is not in control. We scurry about going from one chore to the next, frantically filling our schedule with things that we could never uh, reasonably accomplish. And why? Well, we think because if I don't do it, who will? That's how the thinking goes anyway. And many times we move beyond thinking that it all needs to get done to deluding ourselves to thinking that we can actually be the ones to get it done. And so not only do we now state that God's not in control, but we are implicitly elevating ourselves to the position of God, the one alone who can do all things. There's a band, The Hill and the Wood, and they have this lyric that we would do well to remember the sun will rise to your surprise all by itself without your help. The sun will rise to your surprise all by itself without your help. Our culture promotes doing more. But sometimes, dear believer, you glorify God not by doing more, but by doing less. So reject the infinite ambition um, that we see all around us, that we're tempted to buy into ourselves, reject that, and rest in the fact that God does have the whole world in his hands. We must also remember that as we think about the things that we do for the church, things we do for God specifically, you know, um, it, it's just as dishonoring to God to fill your schedule and to overwork and not get rest doing your secular labors as it is to do, quote-unquote, sacred things, things for the church, ministry, 
But we remember that Christ accomplishes his mission for the world through the church, not just through one Christian, but through the body of Christians. And the church is able to do exponentially more than any of us alone. I might be able to respond to God's uh, call in one or two ways, but I'm part of an organism. I'm part of a body that can respond and serve in a million ways. And that's a good thing. And so the institution of the Sabbath uh, teaches us about our need. We're limited creatures. We're made in the image of God for the glory of God. We need him. Observing the Sabbath keeps that ever before us, but we do get it wrong often. And why is that? Well, the Sabbath helps us here too. Because thirdly, the Sabbath teaches us about the idols of the heart. The power of God... The need of man and the idols of the heart. What do I mean by that? Well, if we think about it, whatever we worship, we, we give our time, right? We give what we worship our time. And our time is a limited resource. I think perhaps the most precious resource that any of us individually have. And we expend it on things that perhaps do not deserve such, costly, such a costly commodity, where do we spend our time? If we zoom out, again, look at society at large, at our present moment, we're giving the majority of our time to our phones, uh, to the Internet, especially true for young people. Annie Flagan, she's reporting for the New York Times in an article this past week. She says that 97% of teenagers are going online every day, and 46% are reporting that they are online quote, almost constantly. Do you know what you can't do on your phone? You know what your phone can't give you? A break. Can't give you rest. Can't rest with your phone. Smartphones and and their apps, they, they thrive on our insatiable appetite to surf, to scroll. And our young people in particular, they get no break from the pressures of um, their peers anymore. You know, at one point not too long ago, uh, you only had to deal as a teenager with the drama of clicks, the demands of fitting in for a few hours every day at school, and then you could go home to this, the go home to that sanctuary, that safety of a, a family where you're accepted and you're you're um, you're safe, or or you could go and and hang out with with your friends down the street or in the neighborhood, people where you didn't feel like you had to be somebody else to. To get in, and now there's no escaping this peer pressure to fit in. The social pressures of conformity are inescapable because now they're in our pockets. And then you add a blue light to that, shining from under the covers at bedtime, and it really is impossible to get any rest when we bring the world home in our phones. In a chapter on the need for sleep, David Murray in his book Reset says this, What I do instead of sleep shines a spotlight on my idols, whether it's late night football, surfing the internet, ministry success, promotion. Why should I sleep when it does nothing to burnish my reputation or advance my glory? And so if it's true that what we do instead of sleep, something we need so badly, uh, reveals our idols, how much more so what we do on Sundays? What we do on Sundays. Verse 3, again, of our text says that God made the day holy. He sanctified it, sanctified it, the the, the actual period of time, this 24-hour period, and he calls it his own. This belongs to me. 
And you show that it belongs to me by worshiping me. Well, if we're not worshiping him on his day, what are we doing? What are we worshiping? Sports. Our work. Hunting. Fishing. Family time. How about sleeping in? How about worshiping the feeling of, I just wasn't into it today. It's as though God has made a public manifestation of our hearts, right? It's as though God says, you want to know what people worship? See what they're doing on the day when they're supposed to be meeting with me in my house. Then you'll know what they worship. And whatever we do on that day that isn't God, that isn't for God, reveals the idols of our hearts. Uh, Friends, the Sabbath is an opportunity for us to experience God in a similar way in which Adam and Eve experienced him in the garden, in a similar way in which we will experience him in glory. Coming to church and worshiping is an opportunity to be with our Father. St. Clair Ferguson has a way of uh, talking about the Sabbath. He says it's, it's Father's Day. Every week is Father's Day because you come into church to be with your father. And then he says, the child who asks how short can that meeting be has a dysfunctional relationship with their father. So it's not primarily a theological issue. It's a dysfunctional relationship issue. Something is amiss in their fellowship with God. And so God institutes the Sabbath, and the way that we observe it reveals what we worship. Unfortunately, often it reveals idols. But as God's children, when we run to him as our father, the Sabbath becomes an opportunity for us to be with him. And if that's what we get to do, if that's what this is really all about, again, not just day off work, but a day to be with our Heavenly Father, doesn't that just kind of um, transform the way we think about Sabbath in terms of do's and don'ts? What can't I do? What can I do? Can I go to this place? Can I do that thing? Can I be with these people? I think those questions just kind of fade away when we recognize that what this is all about is meeting with God. Not meeting with God as a judge, but meeting with God as a heavenly father who wants to be with us, who wants to embrace us. I think that would transform the way we think about the Sabbath. Well, no matter how carefully we cultivate a practice of observing the Sabbath, you will still get tired in this life. You will still have days that feel frustratingly uh, fruitless, weeks that are packed too full, and other weeks that are so uh, monotonous and dull that nothing seems to get done, and they drag. But the Sabbath teaches us about this too. And so finally, I want us to see that God's institution of Sabbath rest teaches us about the hope of heaven. It's the final thing, the hope of heaven. If you look again at our text, you notice that there's something uh, absent in the description of the seventh day. And that's the refrain that we'd become used to hearing in days one through six, that there was morning, there was was evening, there was morning. The first day, the second day, third day. And that's not here at all on the seventh day. The seventh day is presented as being an eternal day. It's not an eternal day. This is a real day here, but it's presented as being an eternal day. Why? Because the rest that God enters into on that day is an eternal rest. And this is brought out in Hebrews chapter 3 
and 4. Let's turn there as we close. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. So the seventh day is presented as eternal because God's rest is eternal. And that means that our ultimate rest will not come in this world, which is temporal, which is time bound, but it will come in in an eternal world. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 points us to. So in in the book of Hebrews, especially at the start of, of the book, the author really wants to make sure you know that Jesus is superior to all sorts of people and all sorts of things. He's superior to angels. He's superior to uh, the, the old covenant law. Here, he's superior to two people in particular, Moses and Joshua. And the reason is because Jesus did for us something that Moses and Joshua could never do. He gave us rest. Moses couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. So we look at Hebrews, we could start at 3, and quoting from Psalm 95, uh, there's this warning, if you look at verse 11, referring back to the people in Moses' day, and refers back to this scene that they grumbled and they complained as Moses led the people, and their rebellion, their grumbling, earned them this harsh word from God, verse 11 of chapter 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. Okay, Moses could not bring God's people into rest. He could not uh, change the hearts of God's people so that they would be obedient from the heart. No, instead they complain, they grumble, and they get that harsh word, they will not enter my rest. Well, when Joshua leads the next generation into the promised land, the land of rest, this still isn't the rest the people are needing because... David writes Psalm 95, which we just quoted. Yes, it points back to the days of Moses, um, but he writes it after the days of Joshua, saying there is still a rest we're waiting for. And so Joshua clearly didn't lead the people into rest either. Look at chapter 4 and uh, verse Six. Since therefore it remains for some to enter this rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he points to a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You see the argument. He's saying if Joshua, bringing the people in the promised land, actually gave the rest that our hearts need so badly, the rest that Augustine talks about, we're restless until we find our rest in you. If that had happened, then God wouldn't have said through David, centuries later, generations later, after they're in the promised land, they're not entering the rest. There's still a rest to come. So, if it's not the promised land, what's... The solution, what's the answer? The rest we need is the rest that is like God's. It's eternal. And so, verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's really interesting. Throughout these whole two chapters, uh, the writer to the Hebrews uses the same word for rest Cataposis, cataposis, cataposis. But when he gets to verse 10, sabbatismos, sabbatismos. Do you hear that? Sabbath. 
It's the only time. He uses it there in verse 10. So it's not just any rest. There remains, I'm sorry, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest. In other words, what the Bible has said about the Sabbath, what we've learned about the Sabbath is connected to the ultimate rest that we need so badly. It's pointing us to glory. It's about the hope of heaven. The rest we need is the rest that God entered on that seventh day. And Jesus, not Moses, not Aaron, not Joshua, Jesus is the only one who can give us that rest. And he says it, doesn't he? When he's come to earth and in his ministry, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the rest that Jesus gives that Moses couldn't give, that Joshua couldn't give? He gives us peace with God. He reconciles us to God. And that rest begins with, in our hearts, we know that we are on right terms with, with Almighty God. And so our, our experience of rest is proportionate to our trust in Jesus. The more we trust him, the more we will have that internal rest. It's because... Christ has transformed how we experience rest and worship that we do indeed worship on the day in which he was raised. But soon the rest will move beyond our hearts and it will become our very home. It will be our experience in glory. And so Hebrews urges faith from us. You need faith tonight. If you want to enter this rest, You need to believe that Jesus is the one who can grant it to you. There's these calls to faith in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from God. 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one can fall by that same sort of disobedience. But this is our goal. There's something that remains for us. So you should not be content with a day off of work here or there, we can only be satisfied with an eternity of fellowship with God. And that's what heaven will give us, but it's what church gives us now. We get a taste of it now. One theologian says, the Sabbath is a weekly recurring sample of eternity. Some of you take trips to Costco just to get the samples. You're eyeing, what are they coming out with now? Have I had that before? If I put on a hat, will they notice that I've already been by once before already? We want samples of the good stuff. The weekly recurrence of the Sabbath right now is a sample of eternity. And so it should always recall to our minds the truth that eternity is the goal of human life. Eternity is the goal of world history. Eternity is the goal of the church. This is where we're headed. Eternity is the goal, not doing more. That's not the goal. Accomplishing more, achieving more, not career advancement, not athletic achievement, not the relentless and the unforgiving desire to get more likes or shares or retweets. That is all a striving after wind. The goal is to take up that seed of accomplishment that that Christ now enjoys. Right? He sat down because the work was done. That's, that's his rest by right, and it will be our rest by grace if you believe in him. Let's pray.
Almighty God, we do thank you for this day that you've given us, a day not only to rest from our labors, but to rest in you and to worship you. You are worthy of our worship. And so we do uh, come to you, and we ask that you would satisfy our souls, that you would fill us with everything that is good, that we would go from this place Having met with you refreshed, uh, we would go renewed, restored, ready to serve you. Indeed, Lord, would we acknowledge that sometimes the best way to serve you isn't by doing more, but by doing less. Not less things for you, but for your sake, doing less things. And so that we could properly orient our weeks around your call to do work on six days and to rest on the Sabbath day? Would we see this not as a burden, but as a blessing and indeed as a delight? You call us, you tell us to call the Sabbath a delight, and we would do that now recognizing the privilege that it is to sample eternity when we come into your presence. We thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen.